This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the Center for Ethics in Science and Technology Exploring Ethics series. This is the first program for the 2016-2017 academic year. Um, and we have a pretty exciting lineup of programs beginning with tonight's program, which we'll get to in a moment. One other thing that I've, I've forgotten to mention is that these programs um, are sponsored by a number of different organizations. The fleet, of course, has been allowing us to meet here um, year after year and has been a, a wonderful partner for the Ethics Center. UC San Diego has been a major supporter, and over the past year we've gotten considerable support from Grossmont College for doing things. And now San Diego State University is also a major supporter um, and is also coincidentally uh, well-featured historically or currently in tonight's program. So moving to that well-featured San Diego State University, this evening's moderator is Stanley Malloy. Um, Stanley's biography and that of all of the panelists is included in the handout for this evening, the program. But I will just on a personal note mention that Stanley has been involved with the Ethics Center since its earliest stages. He's been a passionate, longtime supporter. And as a scientist, I really appreciate that he has been more passionate about reminding us that at times we were forgetting to talk about the ethical issues. And so this has been very important to him. It's very important to us. And I hope you'll be part of that conversation as well. So on that note, I'm going to hand the program over to Stanley. It's really exciting to see you all here because I think this topic fits so well into the agenda of the Center for Ethics in Science and Technology. Zika is in the news. We all know a lot about Zika. It has so many ethical issues that are associated with it. Ethics associated with thinking about a disease that causes problem uh, during childbirth and and in infants. Issues associated with some of the vaccines. Issues associated with the vectors that transmit this disease. There are so many different aspects of this that I think are on people's minds right now today. And we are very lucky tonight because we have three expert panelists who each have a very different perspective on this problem. And you can read about uh, their accomplishments before. I'll just tell you very briefly who they are, and we're going to kick this off. The first speaker is going to be Nikos Gerfield. Nikos is the county veterinarian for San Diego. He specializes in the area of vector control. He has a doctorate in veterinary medicine as well as a PhD, and he has been in the UT in the last week for some of the things that he's been involved with. The second panelist is going to be Sujan Suresta. Sujan uh, has a PhD in immunology and pathogenesis. She's at the La Jolla Institute of Allergy and infection, and she has specialty in thinking about vaccines that can protect people against viruses like Zika and a number of other really important viruses. And then the third panelist tonight is Roland Volkovitz, and Roland is a professor at San Diego State University, 
and he also runs the flow cytometry lab there, he's really interested in a different way of inhibiting viruses, that is, to develop therapeutics, if you would, something like antibiotics that can target certain phases of the virus growth and inhibit the virus in that way. So we're going to move from thinking about mosquitoes to thinking about ways of protecting humans that will really span many of the important questions with this key virus that's on all of our minds right now today. With that, I would like to begin by asking Nikos to come up. Okay, thank you very much. So, I would like to talk about the vector, the mosquito that uh, transmits Zika virus. And in order to uh, do this, I think it's important that we understand the way that Zika virus spreads so we can develop intervention techniques and strategies uh, against it. So, but for example, I'd like to uh, contrast it and compare it with West Nile virus, which perhaps we're a little more familiar with. The reservoir of West Nile virus uh, are birds, and it circulates between birds and mosquitoes by, uh, via these Culex species mosquitoes. Um, they prefer to feed on birds, and only occasionally will they feed on a person or a horse. So we are incidental uh, hosts to that uh, mosquito. Um, Culex mosquitoes can fly for several kilometers, and they live outdoors and come out at night. So in contrast, the reservoirs for Zika are people and primates. And the mosquitoes that transmits Zika virus loves, is, is an Aedes aegypti or Aedes albopictus mosquito. These mosquitoes love to feed on us. We are their favorite food. Um, these mosquitoes have very short flight ranges. They oftentimes not flying further than several hundred feet to a hundred meters from where they are born. Uh, and these mosquitoes will not only, you won't only find them outdoors, but you might find them indoors as well. They will breed inside your homes. So as you can see, these two diseases are, are quite different and it's largely because of the behavior of the mosquito. So knowing this biology of the mosquito starts our minds thinking of how can we intervene to protect ourselves from Zika virus. So what about these uh, 80s mosquitoes? Well, they're called invasive 80s mosquitoes um, because up until 2014, we didn't have them in, in San Diego. We didn't have them in, in California. Uh, these mosquitoes then were, however, prevalent throughout the Americas earlier in the, the 20th century, but they were beaten back quite effectively by vector control programs, which included the use of pesticides such as DDT. But if you're familiar when DDT became uh, outlawed uh, or um, against law to, to use it, as well as other factors such as less uh, funding going into public health and vector control, you can see how the range from the 1930s decreased by the 1970s to a much smaller range, but then with uh, those changes, its range has expanded once again, and it continues to expand its geographical range to this day. 
These mosquitoes, as I said, love to live around people. We are their favorite foods, and we create the sources for them to breed. That is small sources of standing water, like pots and the saucers that you put under your pots to collect that water, uh, rain barrels, buckets, pet bowls, toys left in, in the outside yard, uh, even bromeliad plants, if you're familiar with them, how they collect water inside the, um, the stem area of those plants. We have found mosquitoes breeding in bromeliads as well. And then notorious are tires. If you've ever had an unused tire collect water, you know how difficult it is to empty the water from that tire. Well, these mosquitoes know that too, and they will breed in these tires. So we have a pretty big challenge in front of us as far as how can we get rid of these mosquitoes so that they don't, uh, we don't run the risk of being infected by Zika virus or other viruses that these mosquitoes can transmit. These viruses currently, uh, sorry, these mosquitoes are currently found uh, in multiple areas of California here, uh, and we find more and more areas where they are uh, by, by the week, by the month. So what do we do to counteract this? Well, the first thing is education. Uh, in the vector control program, we do many presentations, we attend many events, we produce materials uh, that are available for the public that talks about these mosquitoes and what to do to prevent uh, them from breeding in your own homes. We monitor and test mosquitoes throughout the county. We set over uh, 1,400 different uh, traps, uh, traps at 1,400 different locations throughout the county trying to assess which parts of the county might be infested by this mosquito. And then we test those mosquitoes for different viruses, including Zika virus. A big effort of our program then is to reduce mosquito breeding. This can be something as simple as dumping out standing water, eliminating those, source, those small water sources there where they might breed. Other techniques are then to eliminate the larvae, this can be done using something like mosquito fish. Uh, we distribute mosquito fish. They're free to the, the public. These mosquito fish will eat these mosquito larvae. Um, for, longer, for larger bodies of water, like our lagoons and rivers, you might have seen some of our helicopters flying above them periodically. These helicopters are dropping a bacterial Granule. They're not spraying anything. They're dropping a granule that contains a bacteria that if the mosquito larvae eat that uh, granule, it will kill the mosquito larvae. The nice thing about these larvicides is that they are non-toxic to fish, to other insects, to birds, to pets, uh, or to people. They're a great invention. And then, in the case... Uh, where we have actually detected someone coming back from a country who's been infected with Zika virus, and we find that there are these invasive Aedes mosquitoes around where the person lives, this is a risk to other people uh, in the area because those mosquitoes could now uh, take a blood meal from that person, suck up Zika virus, and then transmit it to someone else potentially. So in these cases, we need to then intervene, use an ultra-low volume spray to kill any adult mosquitoes that could potentially infect somebody else. So this is we spray only in this, this uh, situation. So what can you do to, to help here? 
where we, where we use three terms here. Prevent mosquito breeding in your homes. Dump the standing water that collects in your pots, in your toys, in your sprinkler boxes, even in the, uh, if you have landscape irrigation that pools water, mosquitoes can breed there. You must dump that water. You can use mosquito fish or mosquito dunks. Mosquito dunks are the larvicide that I was talking about that we dropped from the helicopter. You can buy that over the counter at Home Depot and put it in your rain barrels or put it in your fountains uh, or ponds to help kill mosquito larvae. Protect yourselves from these mosquitoes for flying into your homes by using screens on your doors, your windows, your landscape drains. And then if you're going into an area where you know there are mosquitoes, using an insect repellent. DEET is very effective. Lastly, you can report areas of mosquito breeding to us. Uh, you can go to our webpage, sdfightthebite.com, or call us at, at the number I've listed here. Uh, if you have a, a neighbor who has a a uh, neglected pool that is breeding mosquitoes, we will come out and, and take care of it. So with that, thank you very much, and we'll be taking questions later. Thank you for being here, and I'm happy uh, to be here and talking to you about Zika from a different perspective um, uh, that you just heard. My background is I am a viral immunologist, and for the past decade, my laboratory, our laboratory has been focusing on trying to understand how this virus called um, dengue fever, called dengue virus, causes disease in people. And the reason I'm bringing up dengue is because these two viruses, dengue and Zika, are very similar to each other. So my perspective is how can we use the knowledge we have gained by understanding how dengue causes disease in people to try to understand how Zika might be causing disease so that we can develop therapeutics and vaccines. So this slide shows the disease these two viruses cause. The virus, dengue, dengue virus, causes a range of diseases in people called the dengue fever, so that's the mild form of that virus infection, to dengue hemorrhagic fever and dengue shock syndrome. Dengue shock syndrome is the most severe form. Dengue fever is characterized by high fever, rash, headache, joint and muscle pains. Dengue hemorrhagic fever, the hallmark is not hemorrhage, but it's this phenomenon called plasma leakage, where you have leakage of fluid from blood vessels into tissues. And if this plasma leakage syndrome becomes severe enough, people undergo shock, and that could potentially be fatal. Similar to dengue fever, Zika fever is characterized by high fever, rash, headache, joint, and muscle pains. So one of the problems in the clinics these days is it's, it's been very challenging for physicians to di diagnose dengue fever patients from Zika fever patients. And only difference is this conjunctivitis, but unfortunately only about 10 to 15% of Zika fever patients showed conjunctivitis. Similar to dengue, the complications of Zika include microcephaly. I'm sure all of you know about this in infants born to mothers who are infected with Zika. In adults, Zika complications include Guillain-Barre syndrome and now genital persistence and ocular infection. We don't know the full implications of uh, genital persistence and ocular infection, but you can imagine it could potentially be infertility or blindness. 
Shown here are the geographic distribution of these two viruses. Dengue vi virus impacts pretty much almost all the subtropical and tropical regions of the world, as indicated by the green. These are transmitted by the mosquitoes, the mosquitoes that uh, Nikos talked about. An estimated 390 million infections occur each year, and about 24,000 die. In comparison, Zika also is prevalent in in pretty much the same countries that dengue is in. And yes, it's the same mosquitoes that transmit both of these viruses. But unlike dengue, Zika is now beginning to be known to have multiple modes of transmission. That includes sexual, mother-to-child mother vertical, as well as blood transfusion. And in terms of worldwide incidence, well, at least in the U.S. and the U.S. territories, as of today, greater than 20,000 cases of Zika have been confirmed, and worldwide about 500,000 since 2000, uh, 2015. Again, remember my perspective is from the dengue virus field. So why is dengue very famous amongst all infectious diseases? And the main reason is for its very interesting epidemiology. Basically, remember the virus causes mild to severe form of infection? The severe disease is found mostly in people who are being infected for the second type with a different serotype. So these viruses, dengue, they exist in multiple serotypes. So they're called dengue 1, 2, 3, 4. So technically for us, we could potentially be infected four times with dengue. So these studies have shown that these people who are coming down with severe disease, they represent people who are undergoing secondary infection. And in the case of infants, all infants who, who are coming down with severe dengue disease, they are born to mothers who have previously been infected with dengue. So the central question in the field, and this has been a question that's been going on for the past 70 years, is why are these people with secondary infection? And these infants who are born to dengue immune mothers, so what that means is that these infants have these dengue-specific antibodies in their bloodstream, why are they coming down with severe disease? There have been multiple hypotheses that have been postulated, but one of the dominant ones in the field is called antibody-dependent enhancement. ADE for short. So basically what's happening is you have the virus and binding with the antibodies. So remember in the case of adults or older children, it's coming from prior infection to the, to the same virus. And in the case of infants, these antibodies are coming from dengue immune mothers. So under certain circumstances, these antibodies, instead of protecting you against the virus infection, they are at levels that's below the ones that are required for mediating protection. So we call that sub-neutralizing levels. So this virus antibody complex then enters into cells that normally would not be infected, but now it's infected. That virus antibody com immune complex, once it enters into the cell, it does what it's supposed to, it replicates into high levels. Those little red things are the virus. And the little Y-shaped are the antibodies. And this the high loads of viral, viral application that occurred results in all the uh, clinical symptoms that I just described about the, uh, the severe forms of the disease. So why am I telling you about ADE? That's because the antibody responses to dengue and Zika, they can actually recognize each other. These viruses are so similar that if it's possible 
that the antibody response to Zika and the antibody response to dengue under certain circumstances, they might, they're cross-reactive and they might come down with the severe form of the disease. And the reason this is now an important question as to how does prior immunity to either dengue or Zika impact subsequent infection with either dengue or Zika is important because shown here in the orange, they represent the countries that have both ongoing dengue and Zika transmission. And you can see that that includes Florida in the United States. So how would this scenario play out if we have these antibodies against different, these two different viruses recognizing each other? Again, uh, we don't have any data for Zika, so I'm showing you this scenario in the context of the four serotypes of dengue infection. So during primary infection, so that means that's the first time you've been infected with dengue, you develop a nice antibody response. By definition, you don't have second event, secondary infection. The person comes down with mild disease or no disease. During secondary infection, with the same, if it's the same serotype or same type virus, then the antibody response to that first infection will what we call neutralize the virus, so the person will be protected. Now, in the case of secondary infection with a different serotype, so instead of dengue 1, you might be infected, reinfected with dengue 2, 3, or 4, not all of the antibody response to the first infection will recognize that second virus, and you will have this, what we call the sub-neutralizing levels of antibody that cannot protect infection with that purple virus, a different virus. So in that, under that circumstances, the person may come down with the severe form of the disease. And in the case of infants, those that were born to dengue immune mothers, and now you can imagine certain vaccines under certain rare conditions, they might induce an antibody response that's not neutralizing, but instead it's sub-neutralizing. And in that case, it doesn't matter whether the person is infected with primary, secondary, tertiary, quaternary infection, and the person would come down with severe disease. So this is the kind of scenario that is supported by the data in the dengue field. But now that we have Zika in the, you know, uh, in the context of dengue infection, you can imagine the anti-Zika antibody response or anti-dengue antibody response under certain conditions could be le leading, to, leading to the development of severe disease in certain people. So in my lab, we are actively trying to understand how we can develop new vaccines that, that leads to the induction of appropriate antibody response. And then what I mean by appropriate is the one that always neutralizes the virus so that you don't have any of these problems associated with sub-neutralizing levels of antibody. And the question was, well, how do we do that? Zika is such a new viral entity, and we know very little about it. So one of the things we're doing in, in our lab is trying to understand how the virus causes disease. And one of the ways we're doing is using animal models. So our animal model of choice is the mouse model. So we, we are one of the labs, uh, several labs in the world that have developed mouse models of Zika infection. And using the Zika infection model, we're trying to understand how the virus causes disease, what else it can do besides all the things that we know, and so that we can develop better vaccines and, and perhaps better antiviral therapeutics. So this is an example of one of our recent study that was just published. So what we did was like in the adult brain, so we, you, with the, all the um, press and microcephaly, you, most of you know that this virus likes to infect what we call neuronal progenitor cells. These are the cells that go on to form these adult neurons. 
And so basically the Zika in the fetuses uh, is infecting these neural stem cells that give rise to these adult neurons. So we asked a simple question, well, that, that's in the case of fetuses in infant um, mice. What about in adult mice? Because in adults, we also have these neural stem cells. Could Zika infect the same type of cells in the case of adults? And the answer to that question is yes, because there are two regions in the brain um, that have these adult stem cells, and these are called the subventricular zone and the subgranular zone. Uh, the left is the subventricular zone, and the right is the subgranular zone. And the green areas represent the cells that are green because they are infected with Zika. So what that is telling us is that, yes, similar to what's happening in fetuses, in these newborns, Zika can, affect, can infect adult neuronal stem cells. And what are these adult neuronal stem cells? I mean, every day we, we're, we're having these new neurons. We think, at least based on rodent studies, uh, it's involved in learning and memory. So you can imagine the implications of what Zika infection in adults, and especially children, could be. Probably not, it may not be apparent right away, but maybe a few months or years from now, there may be some neurocognitive behavior that may be a consequence of Zika infection. So these are the types of studies um, our lab is doing, trying to understand how this virus causes disease, what kind of things it, it does. Looks like as scientists, everything we look at, it's, it, it can do, oh my goodness, it can do this too. So it's been a real... Um, I guess interesting, for the lack of a better term, and, uh, that we're trying to understand how this virus is, is manipulating the host immune response so that we can develop better vaccines and antivirals. Thank you. So thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm glad that Susan just talked about vaccines. I want just to remind you that vaccines are not the only way to fight disease or to fight viruses or bacteria, in this case, viruses, correct? And uh, my lab at San Diego State works on novel ways to fight the virus. And again, as Susan uh, explained, we exploit the knowledge we have on dengue because they are so similar. What does that mean, similar? Similar means that the sequence, as you may remember from where you were kids, we are made of DNA. Viruses not necessarily are made of DNA. They, might, they can be made of DNA or RNA. Those viruses are made of RNA. Their genome is RNA. And they are translated into proteins, and we can analyze their proteins. And based on this, of course, it's important for vaccination and for antibody recognition based on sequence. The same thing at the RNA level, at the nucleotide level. So... That's not a mistake. This is the HIV life cycle. And I show that for a very important reason. I show this because in order to develop drugs against a virus, it's important to understand the virus and to understand how the virus takes over the cell. And if you are able to discriminate between the different steps of the viral life cycle and pinpoint them, you can deliver or find drugs rationally or not or by luck, through screenings, or by visiting quote-unquote nature that delivers those natural compounds and block whatever, binding of the virus to its receptor on the cell surface. Or in the case of HIV, integrating the genome into the genome of the host. And that's why when you're infected with HIV, you're infected forever, quote-unquote. 
In the field of HIV, almost every important step in the virus has been targeted with drugs. And this has nothing to do with vaccine development or antibody response of the host against the pathogen, in this case, HIV. So, so if you see, you can find drugs against the first, the first step of the virus binding to the cell, or in the case of HIV reverse transcription, beyond the scope of this talk, or processing, and processing means how the virus actually attacks itself or the host by cutting pieces. And this is critical for, phar for pharmaceuticals to block this step, which is crucial for the viral life cycle. Also for Zika, and also for all the viruses of the family of Zika, such as hepatitis C, dengue virus, Wuhan virus, yellow fever, many of viruses that are human pathogens. So for Zika, which pertains the Flaviviridae and within Flaviviridae, Flaviviruses, that's a general outlook of the life cycle. And there are today already some hints as some different drugs developed against Zika based mostly on the knowledge from dengue because they are so similar, as I told you. If you look at the genome of the virus or the genetic information of the virus, it is a fascinating virus because the proteins that make the virus inside the cell replicate in a very special location inside the cell, which is all kinds of vesicles within the cell and not necessarily anywhere in the cell. So imagine now that you are delivering a drug that doesn't only affect, let's say, binding at the cell surface or recognition by the immune system through antibodies. But now the virus is inside the cell replicating and the targeted protein of the virus you intend to destroy or to destroy its activity needs to be in the place inside the cell where that protein quote unquote lives or functions. So it is not good enough to find a drug. It's also necessary for the drug to be in the right cellular compartment to do what it is supposed to do. I'm showing you here different processes that based on the biology of the virus, we can already target. And targets are those proteins inside from the virus that you hope to destroy activity-wise. And there's already hints of entry inhibitors that are not antibodies, that are not vaccines. And some drugs that may affect how Zika virus kills the cell upon entry. It is believed that Zika turns on the death of the cell. So if we can avoid not allowing those cells to die in the, in the nervous system especially because of microcephaly, maybe you will be able to destroy the virus spread. There's a catch, especially in this forum. Those drugs might not be specific for Zika. Is that good or bad? to be discussed and to be discovered, again, based on the similarities and differences between those viruses. We find a lot of similarities between Zika and, De and Dengue, but we also find some differences that might be important, correct, for the community. In my lab, to end up, 
in my lab, we exploit the similarity. This is not for you to read. <laughs> this is for you to understand what we mean by similar. Similar is not because they look similar under the microscope. Similar is because they have similar sequence at the protein level. And at the protein level, they are so similar that it might be good for vaccine development if and when we don't have enhancement through antibodies, as Susan just mentioned, or might be bad because if they are too similar, you may not be able to be specific. So that's our history. We know that the Brazilian strain jumped from French Polynesia. And my student here, where is he, Robbie, did an alignment and showed that we can exploit the information and the similarity of Zika with dengue and develop assays that we develop in the lab to monitor the activity of one of those important proteins, which is protease. Protease is a protein targeted, the best target of antivirals against HIV, protease inhibitors. If you block the ability of the virus to cleave other proteins, you kill the virus. The same idea is beyond Zika, for Zika, and we develop assays in the lab, hopefully, based on comparison, that are around 99.2% from older Zika viruses. If you compare the first strains in Micronesia and then uh, French Polynesia to Brazil, they are almost the same which is fascinating, correct? Just comparison around 90-something percent homology. When you compare it to dengue, it's around 56 homology. Believe it or not, this is still considered a lot in the viral world, okay? So what we actually um, do is try to develop an assay that will monitor the activity of those enzymes so we can block those enzymes through screenings. Thank you very much. So while we're still waiting for these questions, so Nikos, one of the things that you pointed out, I think very often those of us who go out there and get bit, we tend to think of mosquitoes as being mosquitoes, right? Um, but you, you emphasize this difference in terms of their ability to transmit disease, whether they live inside or outside. Um, but another thing that you talked about that I think is really important is this idea of how far they move during their particular life cycle. Could you say something about that and why that's so critical to human health? So in terms of the 80s mosquitoes that you know, transmit Zika virus or dengue and such, these mosquitoes don't travel very far. So for protecting human health, that gives us uh, an edge up. Because if we find those mosquitoes, we know the area, in a small area, where they're coming from. And that, um, you know, as we're looking at the solution to these different mosquito-borne diseases, it's going to require efforts uh, targeting the mosquito as well as the, the viruses themselves. So it allows us to localize our efforts, whether we are going to look for the breeding sources 
or apply larvicide, or in the worst case scenario, having to um, apply and spray an adulticide product. We don't have to broadcast it necessarily over a large area. We know where to find that. That's great. And Roland, one of the things that you talked about is the idea that some good targets and potential inhibitors have been identified. So, so if if you are sitting in the audience, you say, "Well, this is really great. This, we are very close to having something that could be provided to humans that would help protect human health." Could you give us an idea of how long you would expect it would take to get something like that on the market? And in fact, you can HIV provides a really good sample case in terms of how long it took to get those drugs out to influence human health. Yeah. Uh, there's the optimistic answer and the pessimistic answer. Which one do you want? Um, so, if I believe that we are close to find, there's already a protease inhibitor out there, and there's a, a Indian company that, meant, that says that has antibiotic vaccine against Zika. Um, there are some inhibitors, uh, chemical inhibitors against. I didn't mention one of the crazy functions of Zika, which is helicase. Doesn't matter. It's related to the replication ability of the virus. The viruses mutate. There's something called selection process. This called evolution. If and when we have a great vaccine or a great drug, will this last forever? We don't know. Um, am I optimistic that we will f- have drugs very soon? Yes. Will they last forever? I'm less optimistic. Will the virus mutate? Yes, I promise you. You need to vaccine yourself every year from the flu virus. Why not for for, uh, HIV? (laughs) That's a different story. For Zika virus. So the answer is yes and no. All right, we have our questions. So we're going to move into those. And this first question uh, relates to you, Sujan. The question is, you talked about Zika virus infecting um, stem cells, neuronal stem cells. What about other neurons? Um, Great question. So, so far, at least in our animal models and in these um, human neuronal stem cells derived from um, these embryonic stem cells and what we called induced pluripotent stem cells, Zika preferentially targets the immature neurons, not just the, the, the stem cells for sure, and the more, more different, there are different stages of neuron differentiation. So it infects neural, neural stem cells and a little, bit less, a little bit more mature called the progenitors. But so far, we don't see evidence of Zika infecting neuronal cells in the brain. But as for in other, like the peripheral nerves, we're just starting to look at that as to what, are there mature neurons, say, in the sciatic nerves? And the reason I'm bringing sciatic nerves is because um, the Guillain-Barre syndrome is supposed to be affecting mostly the sciatic nerves. So one of the questions we're starting to look at to try to address is, does, uh, are these neurons in these peripheral nerves uh, infected with Zika? So the answer to that question is we don't know. And yes, it is possible Zika may be infecting neuronal cells. It may be not as efficient as these stem cells. 
this next question is for you, Nikos. And uh, the basic question is, is there a way to find an alternative animal that could be a preferred host for these mosquitoes, <laughs> right? A decoy, if you would. And that way it would, um, the mosquitoes would feed on that other animal instead of us humans. Very neat idea. Um, probably not. And the reason that is the case is um, these 80s Egypti mosquitoes that we have now that have been uh, spreading throughout the world, they, as we talk about mutations and evolution, they evolved from a different uh, 80s mosquito that was originally found in the jungles in Uganda. Uh, and that original 80s mosquito preferentially you know, bit the primates, uh, the, the macaques who lived in, in the forest there. But it's amazing that that mosquito then um, evolved to become an urban dwelling mosquito. So the, that mutation, that evolution of the mosquito then uh, made it very successful to live with people. And it thus then spread essentially across the world. So we are stuck with a mosquito that has evolved to love to eat us and love to live with us. So it's going to be a real challenge to find another animal or another place that this mosquito, after thousands of years of uh, uh, natural selection, essentially, has decided to co-evolve with humans. And I, I cannot emphasize enough how amazing these mosquitoes are and their eggs. They survive Himalayan winter, right? Think about that. So they are, they are evolving as the human behavior is changing. So I'm not really sure we'll ever win against these kinds of mosquitoes. So, Roland, I'll ask you this next question. You talked about HIV, and, and like Suzanne, you talked about dengue and some other kinds of viruses. So the real question is, is it ethical to take finances away from other diseases, research on other diseases, and put those into Zika research? Well, what an easy question. Um, the question is, what do we want? And what do we want to die from or to be saved from? That's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an important question, correct? Um, we are very centered, self-centered. We, United States of America, that's life. But each country is a little bit. So if and when tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, West Nile virus will be the virus that will start killing us, trust me, we will, Zika virus we will forget. And actually, if you know the history of the ethical question about where do we invest our money scientifically and drug development-wise, HIV was, of course, is still a pandemic. People forget that it is still a pandemic. And many countries don't have the resources to buy those excruciatingly expensive drugs. Um, then there was dengue. Dengue did not disappear. Then there was chikungunya, that doesn't kill. It's a different family, but fascinating virus. But also deals, uh, leads to very severe pains for life, probably. 
and also affect tropics and mostly Brazil, and also transferred by the same mosquitoes. The question is, do you kill the mosquito, or do you find drugs against Zika, or against Wenzel virus, or against chikungunya, and what do you want to die from? So that's, are not, that's actually not a joke, correct? That's an ethical question, as, as, as we mentioned. I, today, because, and we will talk about that, about microcephaly and what that means, and that terrifying word that affects the babies, we are terrified. Biologically speaking, death is death. So when you die from HIV AIDS or from dengue, you die. It's interesting that the second chikungunya appeared, it was not important enough because it doesn't kill. So it is worth finding, looking for drugs against dengue, against HIV. When Zika appeared, nobody almost talks about dengue. Dengue is still the exact same disease, much more spread than Zika. And Wesnal virus, nobody talks about Wesnal virus. And actually, someone in San Diego, a lady from San Diego, just died from Wesnal virus, not Zika, in San Diego. Correct? That's, that's a question that I would like the audience to. You want them to vote on where the funding should go? <laughs> that's what Congress regularly I, I does want, I want Congress to sponsor Zika research because we do Zika research. <laughs> and we need money, yes. All right. Uh, so back to you, Nikos. And one of the questions that comes up, if we can't eliminate these mosquitoes from biting us by bringing in a bunch of goats or something, um, there are now genetic approaches that might allow us to eliminate mosquitoes or certain types of mosquitoes from planet Earth. Right? Is it ethical to make any given species go extinct? Um, in the case of mosquitoes, I would say, yes, it's okay. <laughs> and I'd say that because this, this is a, a question that has been posed. And uh, from what I've read is that what would be the downstream consequences if, you know, 80s mosquitoes were eliminated from the earth. Would the uh, birds or the um, you know, fish that eat this mosquito, would they suffer undue consequences? Would their populations be in jeopardy? And at least as I understand it, if we eliminated this mosquito, we really would not have secondary effects, severe secondary effects on other species. So I think in general your question is, yes, we have to be very careful about what we're going to eliminate. But I think in this one case, it's okay if we can really do it. May, may I? Yes, I agree with Nikos. But the goal, the question is, are you destroying all mosquitoes or just the species that transfer those viruses? Which interestingly, as I mentioned, and we already talked about, two main species are vectors for all those viruses, including Zika. Zika seems to be less specific and may use other mosquito species. And then the question is, if and when you destroy the vector, which is the mosquito, or the specific species, will you select for mutants of the virus that might be more resistant that choose another vector 
And then by killing the original vector, we're actually selecting for a more dangerous virus? Question mark. And as these are RNA viruses, so that means every time they make more of themselves, it's a different strain. And instead of a mosquito, we might have a tick problem. Yes. So, by the way, this question was on the survey, you may have noticed. And um, the audience, the average audience response was a 4.0 out of 5 that this is a good thing to do. Okay? <laughs> so it's interesting to see how your responses compare here. Uh, one of the other things that was on the survey that is a question that somebody whispered very loudly from the audience was uh, related to uh, something that you showed in one of your slides, uh, Nikos, and that was about uh, DDT. And it, it is striking the reduction in transmission of di mosquito-borne diseases uh, in the 70s due to DDT use and how it's come back. So the question is, should we go back and begin using DDT again uh, at the levels where we once did? I don't, I don't feel that way. I think most uh, people in, in our business in, in terms of vector control do not advocate returning to DDT. Yes, it was, it was very effective. It wasn't the only thing that resulted in the uh, knocking down of these mosquitoes, um, uh, but it, it was effective. Um, we talk about where should money be invested uh, you know, at a federal level. So you know, looking at alternatives to DDT, which persists in the environment for a long, long time and definitely does have secondary effects to the birds and the eggshells and, and bioaccumulation and such, um, you know, we, it causes severe problems that, that will have other consequences to, to our environment. But rather, can we investigate and look for new um, uh, chemicals or bacteria or biologic agents to control this mosquito that essentially doesn't have those really undesirable secondary effects? And uh, by the way, the audience also voted on this, and the average vote in this case of the audience was that um, the idea of using DDT, 2.1 out of 5, thought that this was a very reasonable idea. So just uh, less than half of you uh, thought that that was a reasonable approach to do. So, um, so let's go on, Sujin. One of the one of the questions that comes up when you talk about um, the antibodies that cross-react is what about co-infection? Are studies being done with co-infection of dengue and Zika? And are Zika and chikungunya? And is it possible that some of the effects we see really are due to co-infection, not single infections? Yes. Um, so for sure... There have been case reports of actual humans with co-infections, dengue and Zika, dengue and chikungunya, and there actually have been case reports of all three, because these three viruses, remember those countries that I, those orange countries in my slide, actually these three viruses co-circulate, even though I focus just on dengue and Zika. Um, as for research, again, uh, we're really focused on understanding 
what each virus does by itself because it's so unknown. We really didn't know anything about Zika since it was first identified in 1947. It's really in 2016 that we started to learn the answer to the basic question, what does this virus infect? And when somebody asked me, well, does it affect adult neurons, I mean, the more mature neurons, you know, we don't know. That should not be my answer, but that's how little we know about these viruses. And right now, as a scientist, it is really difficult to understand how these two viruses together will behave if we don't understand how each virus by itself behaves. So the focus at the scientific level has been trying to understand what each one of these viruses are doing by itself. And I'm sure, hopefully, in a few years from now, we're at, we, you know, we, we're at a, uh, we reach a point where we try to start doing these co-infection studies. So that's a good question. So, Roland, one of the, the really enticing things about if you had a good uh, therapeutic that could be used against Zika is potentially you could use it as a prophylactic for women who are going to become pregnant in endemic areas. So there, there are two parts of this. One, is that a feasible idea? And two, given the number of people that are infected in an area like parts of Brazil, is it even feasible to think of using a prophylactic drug on that many people? So th- this, this question is truly an ethical question. So it's, it is the, the right place to talk about. Um, we have now, as you may know, in the HIV AIDS world, the approach approved by the FDA of prophylactic treatment, treatment as prevention. Very easy to say, very difficult to implement. Yes, for HIV AIDS, if you are active sexually, if and when you are in groups that are more in danger of infection, correct, and you know those groups, um, homosexuals, prostitutes, straight people too, I remind you, versus don't discriminate, people do. Um, they are in trouble of taking those drugs that are not available in parts of the world where they are not available for diseased people. How now can you treat with a drug that probably will be ridiculously expensive that many poor countries cannot provide to their sick people and then have government saying, oh, yes, yes, it is good to use it as a prevention drug. Please use it. Easy to say, beautiful idea. On paper, I'm afraid it doesn't work. Second, I'm not against, don't misunderstand me, I'm not against the use of those as prevention, as prophylactic uh, treatment, but we also forget that those drugs, in general, have terrible side effects. We don't understand yet, 35 years later, many of the side effects of HIV drugs and why they are so different in different people because we are different, our immune system is different. So in different, with Zika, according to my knowledge, and this is very new news, it's unclear why there's so much more microcephaly in Brazil than in other parts of the world where there's more infection rates of Zika, like in French Polynesia or in Puerto Rico. 
Maybe it's also the immune, uh, the immune makeup of Brazilian populations that are more um, uh, prompt to that specific um, disease. I think we have time for one last question, and Sujan, it's your question. The, the question really has to do with infection of, of infants during pregnancy. And it, does the blood-brain barrier, once it's fully formed, protect the, the baby, the developing infant, against Zika infection? Is, is it so susceptible during development because you do not have those kinds of normal barriers that might keep a virus from making it into the brain? For Zika to cause this, um, cause infection in the fetus, the nervous system, the virus has to reach, breach this placental barrier. And the problem right now is we don't understand how the virus is able to go through that barrier. So once you go through the placental barrier, then you can imagine in the developing fetus, it's easy access to get to the CNS, the developing CNS. But right now, the question the scientists are trying to figure out is, how is this virus crossing this placenta that is supposed to be protecting the fetus from not just Zika, other, other microbial pathogens? And so far, we haven't been able to figure that out. And we're going to need these animal models, probably in more research, not just with mouse models, and probably may even need to do perform experiments with non-human primates because they are the closest relative to us. There are certain aspects of pregnancy that the mouse model can, can never recapitulate. So no matter how hard I try, just the biology of the mouse pregnancy is so different from a primate, people like uh, and in the humans, that we may have no choice. So that's another ethical question. Um, we may have to do some of these experiments in non-human primates, and then we may be able to ha have the answer as to why Zika is crossing the placental barrier. And again, once it crosses the placenta, then it's easy access for the developing fetus. So I think this is really the kind of important question that this forum was really developed for. With that, let's thank our speakers. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.